0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is isaiah 65 seventeen through 6617 For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Wow, imagine that evil. Brokenness, calamity, and justice swept away in the recreation of a new earth with new heavens above. All of our sin and weakness, all of our guilt and shame, remembered no more, nor even lurking in our mind. The people of God set free for gladness and joy in a new creation. I commented in a previous lesson that the climax of the book of the Conqueror comes in the middle But reading this, I'm not so sure. Does the climax come in the middle when the conqueror dresses himself to bring righteousness and salvation, the righteousness of the wedding and salvation of vengeance, establishing the promised glorious Zion? Is that the climax? Or does the climax come now in the last two chapters with the proclamation of a new heaven and a new earth and a sign established among the nations? Well... The beauty of a chiastic structure is that we don't have to decide. A chiasm can give emphasis to the beginning, to the middle, and to the end all at the same time. Oswald understands this declaration in sixty five seventeen, for behold I create new heavens and a new earth to connect all the way back to the first verse of the book of the Conqueror in fifty six one. Preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. God's righteousness is going to be revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A revelation that comes in stages. First, Jesus comes as the suffering servant and enables our union with him. That is a manifestation of God's saving righteousness that enables new creation in the believer. The book of Revelation later speaks of a thousand year reign. And maybe this passage speaks to that reign. That's the beginning of a new kind of kingdom on earth, but the fulfillment of God's righteous promises cannot come to be until this present order of creation itself is redeemed through a recreation of heavens and earth. So we are a people looking ahead to the culmination of God's promises, but we don't sit and do nothing while we wait. We are invited to participate in the unfolding reality of God's kingdom from stage to stage. The beginning of the book of the Conqueror exhorts us to preserve justice and do righteousness now because of what will be. Preserve justice and do righteousness. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. We want our actions in the present to be a confirmation of and a participation in what will be. The unfolding of God's kingdom involves some complexity. The watcher's lamentation over the destruction of God's people raises the question, who really are God's people? Who is going to be glad and rejoice forever? Are the people of Israel God's chosen kingdom or not? The answer is yes and no. That's the answer Isaiah gives, and that's what we see in Paul's development of this very question in Romans 9-11. through Who are God's people? Paul is going to draw on the potter metaphor in Isaiah 64-8 to argue the justice of God's wrath against the Jews and God's mercy towards Gentiles. That's in Romans 9. In Romans 10, Paul picks up God's response to the watcher in Isaiah 65-2. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. God has not refused Israel. Israel has refused God. Does that mean Israel is now totally out of the picture? No. Paul's argument in Romans 11 follows the two stages of Isaiah's thought. First, Israel is never completely rejected. There's a remnant of Jews who believe and believing are always included among God's people. Second, Israel as a entity, maybe as in a majority, will be included back in after the time of the Gentiles has come to an end. Those two ideas are consistent in Isaiah. Not all Israel is saved, the remnant is saved, and Israel will exist as a distinct entity at the end of things and be included together with Gentiles as God's people. Israel has been chosen out for a special role in salvation history. That does not mean Israel and God's kingdom are equivalent. There is a close connection under the old covenant between the spiritual people of God and the geopolitical nation of Israel. Even then, the two are not the same. Israel will be destroyed and exiled. Many Jews will be regarded as enemies to God. And yet a remnant has always been and always will be. These are God's people in the spiritual sense, God's kingdom in the spiritual sense. This kind of kingdom becomes even more prevalent under the new covenant when identification with any one geopolitical nation is completely removed and the locus of what it means to be the people of God becomes spiritual faith in Jesus Christ. The people of God are those who have believed in Jesus. So in Isaiah's time, there is some complexity between ethnic Israel, geopolitical Israel, and spiritual Israel. As we're coming into the climatic end of Isaiah, we can see these four truths. First, the rebellious children of Israel will be treated as enemies of God, separated from him. Second, those who remain true to God will continue to be included in covenant relationship with him. Third, Gentiles will also be included into covenant relationship with Yahweh. Fourth, Israel will play an important role in the culmination of God's work when he recreates heavens and earth. These intertwined truths are organized by Isaiah into a chiastic pattern in his last two chapters. The whole book of the Conqueror has been chiastic. It's also helpful to recognize this chiasm within that chiasm because recognizing the pattern helps us to understand Isaiah's move from remnant to rebellious and back again, kind of multiple times. In our last lesson, I went with Oswald's structure of prayer and response. So that's a more just recognizing the linear connection between the watcher's lament and God's response to that lament. So we just covered response as 65, 1 through 16. Moltier is the one who recognizes the more complex chiastic structure. According to his view, God's response covers almost all of chapters 65 and 66 in a nine part chiasm that highlights the tension between remnant and rebellious, God's blessing and God's judgment. The response section in our last lesson just took us through half of that chiasm. I'm going to explain to you now the parallel pairs Montier has identified And going through the pairs will do two things for us. It will provide a review of the response material from our last lesson, while at the same time giving us a forecast of the parallel second half of that response that we're going to cover in this lesson. God's longer response to the watcher's lament begins and ends with an invitation from God to a people who do not know him. In A sixty five one, that invitation was to a rebellious Israel. In A prime sixty six eighteen to twenty one, the invitation is going to be to Gentile peoples in far off countries. In B and B prime sixty five two to seven and sixty six fifteen to seventeen, God declares judgment on those who embrace paganism. Both passages mention sacred gardens and eating swine's flesh. C and C prime, 65, 8 to 10, and 66, 5 to 14, give attention to the remnant. The faithful are described in both sections as servants. D and D prime, sixty-five eleven to 12, and 66, 1 to 4, repeat judgment on those who turn to false religion, emphasizing their refusal to answer when God called. These specific words in D are repeated in D prime. I spoke, but they did not listen, and they did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Finally, the center section E describes the joy God's servants will experience in the new creation he is going to make. Since we're starting already halfway through, the joy of that center point E is where we begin this lesson. From there, we move to judgment, acceptance, and back again to judgment. If we were doing the whole chiasm, the pattern would be judgment, acceptance, judgment, joy, judgment, acceptance, judgment. All that back and forth from those rejected to those accepted makes much better sense when we understand that these two chapters are organized according to the parallelism of a chiastic structure. And Isaiah's use of this kind of structure maintains the tension present in the question, who really are the people of God? To whom do the promises of righteousness and salvation apply? Is it all of Israel? No, it's a remnant. So having come halfway through, we start with the center of the chiastic response to the lament, and then we're going to move back out. I'm going to address E, then D prime, then C prime, then B prime, and I'm going to leave A prime for our next lesson, which is also our final lesson for Isaiah. We start this lesson in the promise of the middle of the chiasm. This is E, joy in the new creation, Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the sinner who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's start with the big problem of interpretation posed in this passage. If this passage is about the eternal heavenly kingdom on earth, how is it that the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 be thought accursed? Robert Alder does not see this passage as describing the eschatological kingdom. He understands the promise of new heavens and new earth as poetic exaggeration. To him, this passage describes a promised period of blessing after the return of Israel from Babylon. Jerusalem will be remade. The weeping of exile will be removed. Houses will be built and vineyards planted. In a time of peace, wolf and lamb graze together. The shalom of God covers all areas of life leading to a reduction in infant mortality and an increase in life expectancy. This is poetic language for a period of blessing. That seems like a valid option for interpreting this passage. Either way we go, we're going to have to allow for poetic use of language. Either the references that sound like a totally new reality are hyperbole, or the references that sound like the presence of death are hypothetical. When I look at the whole of the passage in its context with the prophecies of a glorious Zion that have come before, I lean away from Alter's interpretation that this is the expansive language of hyperbole and towards the language of death being hypothetical. Before we get to the references of death, here's what stands out to me. God is not only recreating Israel and Jerusalem. He is creating new heavens and a new earth. Through the book of Isaiah, references to heaven and earth have been referenced to all of creation. That's the sense in the beginning in Isaiah 1-2 when the prophet calls heaven and earth as witnesses to God's word. In 42-5, the reference to heavens and earth points back to the original creation. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring. We also get the sense of the whole physical realm in forty nine thirteen. Shout for joy, O heavens! And rejoice, O earth. You might also note the plural use of heavens instead of singular heaven, and that accentuates the fact that we're talking about creation here. In Jewish cosmology, the plural does not refer to physical heaven and spiritual heaven. We're not contrasting the place of God's spiritual heavenly kingdom and the physical heavens. And we are going to see that later in one, where we are told the heavens are God's throne and the earth is his footstool. God is beyond heavens and earth. The heavens are not a place God lives. In the Jewish cosmology, the Jewish understanding of the universe, the plural heavens refers to the lower heaven of earth's atmosphere, where birds fly and clouds float, and the upper heaven of outer space, where sun, moon, and stars are placed. Those are... The heavens. The heavens are the whole expanse of creation extending outward from the earth. Here in 6517, God creates something new out of the heavens and the earth. That's the universe. And furthermore, that newness is everlasting. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. That resultant joy is not only the joy of the servant, it's also the joy of the king. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God rejoices in what he has made. We assume that God rejoiced in the original creation when he declared it good, and when he added human beings and declared it very good. The joy of God is explicitly stated here in reference to this new creation. God will make a new environment and bring all of his own into that environment. He will rejoice and be glad in his people. That's such an important gospel truth to remind yourself of. God sees where he is taking you. You are part of his joy. He is not pleased with every decision and action and thought you make now. You still struggle with sin. He knows that. He's got you in process. You are not yet fully who he has created you to be. But you will be in complete harmony with your new surroundings one day. And God's heart that sings over you then can already sing over you now because he is certain in his own knowledge and power to get you there. He sees his completed work in you. You are part of this glorious new heavens and new earth. That makes God rejoice. That makes his heart glad in his people. I'm getting ahead of myself. There are more reasons in this text to believe this is a vision of the eternal kingdom. Not only is the new creation marked by joy top to bottom, but the corollary is also true. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. The absence of mourning is a regular refrain a consistent attribute in isaiah's vision of the glorious zion so that was verse 19 now skipping over the problematic middle verses of 20 to 24 for a moment the passage ends in verse 25 with more language we've already heard the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's a shorter version of the same promise that was given way back in eleven six through 9, where the promise was given in connection to the Messiah establishing his kingdom reign. This verse indicates a new order to life. Perhaps these references speak about new interactions among animals. More likely, the new order applies to human society. The aggressor and the victim no longer express enmity towards one another. No one's being oppressed or victimized. They eat together side by side. The serpent, though, will eat dust. And that seems to be a reference back to the original creation narrative. The serpent, who originally brought evil into the garden, is the one eating dust. That sounds like shame. The evil one will be put to shame. He will be defeated. And so this passage ends with this promise, none will do harm in all my holy mountain. That speaks to the eternal quality of the new creation. Unlike the garden, this new state, this new kingdom will be made good and there will be no evil presence that can enter in and pervert that goodness. This reading of the whole passage as the eternal kingdom of God on earth agrees with the traditional interpretation that this is the new creation of the end times, not the return of Israel to the promised land. How then do we understand the presence of death? One way is to read this passage as the millennial kingdom mentioned in Revelation 24-6. through It's not quite the eternal kingdom. Instead, it's the preface to the eternal kingdom. It's hard to say whether that's a valid interpretation. There's so little information in the Bible about a millennial kingdom. And even if we were to go that route to explain the presence of death, we still have the big problem that the creation of new heavens and new earth is not millennial kingdom language in Revelation. It's the language of the eternal kingdom of Revelation 21. It's possible that Isaiah conflates together the longer historical process that leads to the establishment of the final kingdom. I referred to that process in my introduction of this lesson. The kingdom is now, you know, we are a new creation who have been born again in Jesus. For those who believe in a literal thousand year reign, the next stage of kingdom involves Jesus coming down on earth and reigning for a thousand years. Earth is not yet recreated at that point, and our sinful bodies are not yet removed. It's a further stage. After that reign. God casts out all evil and death and makes the heavens and earth anew. This is called telescoping, where everything's collapsed together. And we've seen this before in Isaiah with references to the first and second coming of Messiah. It's possible for Isaiah to be looking at the very far future as one mountain without distinguishing between major peaks and the long valleys of time that lie between those peaks. That could be happening here. But if we don't take recourse to a millennial kingdom view, and we believe the passage is about the glorious final kingdom, the question is still there. How do we understand the presence of death? So let's go back to verses 20 to 25. The first line's not a problem. This is why there will be no crying out or mourning in the new Jerusalem. There is no untimely death in this society. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. Those two versets tell us of something that will not be. The next line is the greater problem. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the sinner who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. The question is whether this is a real experience of the new heavens and new earth whatever that is, or is this a hypothetical? If it's a hypothetical point, we might translate the first verset this way. If one dies at the age of 100, he will be considered a youth. The next set intensifies the hypothetical. And the one who does not even reach the age of 100, question mark, like what will be thought of him? The third and final set answers, he will be thought accursed. As a hypothetical, the emphasis of the verse would not be that there is certainly going to be death, but would be how odd, how out of place would death be in the new heavens and new earth? Now, how strange and unexplainable if anyone should live to only 100 or should die before reaching 100. If someone were to die at such a young age, they would certainly be thought accursed now, that's a reference to the curse that came at the fall of Adam and Eve. To die at any point, even after a long life, reveals the presence of corruption. The curse has not yet been overdone if somebody could die, even if they die at 100. But will that ever happen? Can it happen if the heavens and earth have truly been remade? If we read this as a hypothetical of the new creation, then no, it, it can't actually happen. It's emphasizing the wrongness of it. You know, were, were it to happen, we would have to conclude the curse of sin is still present. There is reason to mourn. But we've been told there never again will be mourning. I recognize this is problematic. Certain passages have problems. And we have to choose one way or the other. This sounds more than just Israel coming back after the exile. But then it somehow sounds less... Than, than the new heavens and new earth. And so we're struggling with the poetry to decide which one to go with. Isaiah 25, 6-8 gives support outside of this passage for taking verse 21 as hypothetical. In this previous vision of the New Jerusalem, death is completely removed. So this is 25, 6-8. through eight, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Jumping way ahead to Revelation, Revelation's climatic declaration of recreation brings together this passage in Isaiah 25 and our present passage in Isaiah 65. Listen to the language in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. A new heaven and new earth, no more death, no more mourning, every tear wiped away. That's the language of Isaiah. I take the context around verse 21, along with this previous passage of Isaiah 25, together with the future passage of Revelation 21, as solid ground for interpreting that one problem verse about death as a hypothetical emphasis that is really pointing out the strangeness of curse in the new heavens and new earth. In reality, it won't be there. If that's correct, there's no compelling reason to take verses 22 to 24 as the rebuilding of Jerusalem after exile in Babylon. The rest of the passage celebrates a new society a new experience of well-being in this new creation. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build in another inhabit. They will not build in another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. If this is the glorious Zion described in 60 to 62, the effect is the opposite of hyperbole. Instead of an expansive description of present reality, this is a prosaic description of eternal reality. If the language paints a picture of shalom or well-being in terms that connect with the hearts and souls of the present audience. Now Imagine building and planting without any fear of raiders or strong armies coming and stealing that away. There are olive trees in Israel 2 and 3,000 years old. So imagine death so far out of your mind as a healthy, fruitful, long-lived tree that's practically eternal. There are stone streets in the Promised Land worn by Roman-era ox carts. So imagine the sense of stability communicated by the phrase My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will be the ones in in this land when these solid stone works are finally worn out. In the uncertainty of the Middle East, where even the empires of Assyria and Babylon eventually fall, smaller nations like Israel and Judah faced an ever-present threat of invasion and destruction. The peace and stability God provides removes that mental and emotional worry. You will not labor in vain. Your children will not experience calamity. Will there be offspring and descendants in the heavenly kingdom? I don't know. Here, the sense is of longevity, legacy, blessing on those you love. It's not easy to know which details of far future poetic prophecy are literal descriptions and which details paint a picture Of that experience by using terms of our present existence. This passage removes vulnerability, it removes fear, it gives purpose and hope and stability. Who experiences this wonderfully stable and fruitful and peaceful life? The chosen ones. Well, who are the chosen ones? Israel would embrace that title for herself, and in a sense, that's right. The ethnic people, the Jews, are chosen. They are chosen for a special role in the history of salvation. But they are not all chosen for salvation. Some the potter has made for noble purposes, and some for ignoble. Only the remnant is chosen for peace in the new heavens and new earth. We move now from the center of the chiastic response to the beginning of the second half. D prime affirms again the need to differentiate between the faithful remnant and those who are rebellious, those who turn their backs on God. There will be judgment on those who ignore his voice. This is 66, one through four. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen, and they did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Following the declaration of recreation, God reminds us that his existence dwarfs the physical world. You know, the reminder particularly targets the ancient Near Eastern tendency to see God as a localized deity tied to the temple in Jerusalem. God has made himself imminent to a special people. You know, the watcher remembered God as the one who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them. God broke into space and time to make himself known and experienced. The Jewish tendency was to then identify God according to his localized presence among them, in their temple, in their city, in Jerusalem. Isaiah's vision in chapter 6 has already countered the temptation to overemphasize God's eminence by reminding us of his transcendence. He is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the emphasis we're getting here in 61, 1 through 2a. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. God is not specifically tied to one part of his physical creation, nor is he specifically tied to the whole of creation. He is separate from and greater than the entire physical universe. Still, it would be another mistake to assume that he is so transcendent That he cannot be bothered with human affairs. That he doesn't see us. He does see us. And in verse 2b, he tells us what kind of person he looks to with approval. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. I love this line. This is the one God blesses. Not the one who is rich in righteousness, but the one who is poor in spirit. God knows his chosen ones cannot live up to his standard of holiness. No one can keep covenant with him. We all fail. That's a guarantee. So God made a way that we might be accepted even though we sin. The suffering servant dies to pay the penalty of our sin. We no longer live under a standard of perfect holiness. So if God does not expect us to live up to the standard of his holiness, what does God expect of us? He expects humility and a contrite spirit. He expects us to preserve justice and do righteousness. He expects us to tremble at his word. That word tremble leaps out to me. I don't think of it as a shaking deer frozen by the beams of a car's headlights. The word tremble is connected to the fear of the Lord. To tremble at God's word is to recognize the seriousness of God, the seriousness of human life, the seriousness of our sin, the seriousness of good and evil. To tremble at his word is to be attentive to these sober realities because our lives are at stake. The well-being of our loved ones is at stake. Goodness and justice and holiness are at stake. Trembling is the opposite of apathy. To say, I will live how I want, God forgives, that's his job, is to show that you have no real experience of God. God reveals himself to those who take his word seriously and soberly, who tremble, who humbly bow down, who come with a contrite spirit. The sinful human heart understands grace as freedom to sin because the sinful human heart has never really seen God or even really understood themselves. The repentant human heart understands grace as freedom from sin, freedom from corruption into the goodness that is God. The majority in Isaiah's Judah make light of God's law. Unfortunately, that can be said of a large swath of the Christian church as well. Many go through the motions of religious ritual without any serious intention of pursuing the vision of righteousness. God communicates to us, through his word, These are the ones Isaiah calls out in verse 3. They sacrifice according to biblical requirement, but they do not preserve justice and do righteousness in their communities. God sees through their ritual obedience to the reality of who they are morally. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. It was God's idea to sacrifice an ox, to sacrifice a lamb, to offer grain, to burn incense. That's all good ritual or potentially good ritual. But what twists it up is the very last line. They have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. And so all these rituals that have potential goodness are detestable. They're like slaying a man or breaking a dog's neck or offering swine's blood. Blessing an idol. The lack of moral vision or obedience ruins the ritual. Seeing past the ritual through to the heart, God gives this verdict in verse 4. So I will choose their punishments and bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. This is a sobering image. You know, Here are people who are actively going to temple, actively going to church, actively going through the motions. They would say, yeah, we're doing exactly what you want us to do, God. And God says, you're not even listening to me. You're completely ignoring me as you go to church. The watcher had lamented God's judgment of his chosen people and accused God of remaining silent, failing to bring his wayward people back. God answered that charge in the first half of this scholastic structure. Here we get the answer again human beings bear responsibility for their own choices. Regardless of how God's sovereignty may or may not come into play, God called. They did not answer. God spoke. They did not listen. What did they do? They did evil in God's sight. They chose that in which God does not delight. They did not tremble at his words. They will tremble at the dreadful consequences of their own rebellion. God sees. In verse 2, he looked to the humble and contrite. In verse 4, he looks to the evil of those who actively choose that in which he does not delight. This section ends with those God has seen and condemned. We turn back in the next section to those God has seen and accepted. This is C prime, the glorious future of the Lord's servants. Isaiah 66, 5 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you have said, who exclude you for my name's sake, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all of you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend to her peace like a river. And like an overflowing stream, the glory of the nations. And you will be nursed. You will be carried on the hip and dandled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad. Your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. But he will be indignant toward his enemies." The first line addresses this group of people who respond to God's word with holy reverence. This is his word for them. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. God knows they have been mocked by those who do not take his word seriously. The sarcastic words of the mockers are going to mean something like this. If God is real, let him act the way he promised. Then we can see you be happy. But we all know nothing's going to happen. This is Isaiah's short poetic way of expressing that. Your brothers who hate you have said, who exclude you for my name's sake, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. God says of these scoffers, they will be put to shame. Then he speaks with a voice designed to cause trembling. Just like when he spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai, though this time he speaks from his temple. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. If the voice from the temple responds to the voice of uproar in the city, what does that voice say? The first line is not really meant to make sense. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. That's not how birth happens. Not first the birth and then the birth pains. Now it's the other way around. So applying the birth metaphor to Zion... What order of events should we expect? Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? So again, God responds to the lamentation of the watcher. You lose faith in the mess of the present. You experience pain and think all is lost. The words of the mocker chips away your faith in the promise. I told you there would be judgment and pain before the new Zion comes. The the pain is a sign to you that there will be birth. As a mother encourages herself during that pain with a vision of the new life that is coming, do the same. Don't give up hope. Encourage yourself with the pain of tribulation, knowing that through it, I'm going to bring about the gladness of a new creation. So then it's really in 10 through 14 that we get this this hopeful, joyful word to the remnant. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. And then we get this, this image of Jerusalem as the mother who's nursing us, the babies, uh, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend to her peace like a river and like an overflowing stream, the glory of the nations. As you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and dandled on the knees as the one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Don't give up hope. Comfort is coming. New life is coming. And then finally, verse 14. Then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant towards his enemies. Hold on to the promised vision. You will be comforted by the new Jerusalem like a mother who comforts a newborn babe. And this is a promise for those who tremble at his word. But what is blessed for some is calamity for others. The well-being of God's servants is accomplished hand-in-hand hand with the destruction of God's enemies. We finish with B-prime, judgment on those who have given themselves over to pagan spirituality. Isaiah sixty-six fifteen to 17 For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center who eats swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Revelation picks up this language fire and the sword, the slain, who have opposed God to the end. And that's a word to cause trembling. Who are God's people? Not all of Israel have been chosen for salvation. God's response to the watcher makes clear that a remnant will be saved and a rebellious majority will be punished. The back and forth of this chiasm has condemned two types of false religion. I've addressed these two kinds of false worship in a previous lesson as the idolatry of the right and the idolatry of the left. The idolatry of the right is the one we've already talked about. It's a holding on to biblical r- ritual and tradition without sincerely kneeling to God and pursuing his moral vision of what love and goodness and justice look like. The idolatry of the left are those who have turned away from biblical teaching completely to embrace various forms of paganism prevalent in society. So D'prime addressed the false religion of the traditional right, Here, B-prime addresses the false religion of the liberal left. These sanctify themselves to go up to gardens and eat any unclean thing in a flaunting of biblical covenant. Both groups will come to an end together, slain by the Lord. Who are God's chosen people? Those who tremble at his word and humbly submit their lives into his hands. They have not lived up to God's holy standard. They have received grace and believed in the hope of a new creation. They have submitted their lives into God's hands and pursue his vision of what is just and right. Are these chosen ones Jews only? No. Isaiah has always seen in his glorious vision of Zion an inpouring of Jew and Gentile alike. The Messiah will not be king of Israel alone. There will be no end to the increase of his government in peace. The servant dies for all. The conqueror accomplishes global salvation and global justice. The whole of Isaiah ends with this global scope in our next and final lesson. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.